Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and welcome to the Practical Stoic Podcast, where I dive deep into the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. If you find value in this podcast, then you can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. Otherwise, you can head to simonjedrew.com to find my writings, my music, and also information about my one-on-one coaching. But apart from that, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. So today I'm fortunate enough to have an interview with somebody whose works I was actually unfamiliar with until uh, I I was offered this interview and whose influence I was definitely unfamiliar with until I started hearing from people about how much uh, his works have have changed their lives. And uh, a very influential person in the world of the ancient thought and, and, and the classics, none other than Robin Waterfield. So, Robin Waterfield is a British scholar, translator, and editor specializing in ancient Greek philosophy. His books include, among many others, Why Socrates Died, Dispelling the Myths, Creators, Conquerors, and Citizens, A History of Ancient Greece, The Greek Myths, Stories of the Greek Gods and Heroes Vividly Retold, and now uh, by far the best translation of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations that I've ever come across. And uh, I couldn't recommend this translation highly enough. There are links in the show notes to where you can get it. But for now, I will say that there are many reasons to love this translation. Uh, firstly, uh, Robin's extensive knowledge of the philosophy and theology of Stoicism, and uh, which is really the undergirding philosophy of Marcus's Meditations, uh, is very helpful because it is an annotated translation, which means that there's there's almost as many notes as there are uh, meditations from Marcus Aurelius, and so it's very, very helpful for every single meditation. There's basically a note below it that can give you some insight into what he is talking about there, and and so for, for anybody who's looking to really study this work and really get a good grasp of what Marcus Aurelius was trying to teach, then I know that this translation will act as a very firm foundation upon which you can rely. You know, it, it will really help you in your study, uh, and it's certainly helping me as well. So um, I'm currently doing the Seneca series where I'm going through his writings and learning from him. But when I do my Marcus Aurelius series, even if it is two or three years from now, once I'm finished with Seneca, uh, I will be relying on on this translation because it is, is uh, very comprehensive. And so, uh, again, I can't give it enough praise, so I'm going to stop there. And, uh, and I'm just going to recommend that you go out and grab this copy. Uh, and there are links in the show notes, as I said. So, uh, without any further ado, I present to you my interview with Robin Waterfield. Okay, so Robin, I'm really, really happy to have you on the show today. Uh, you know, I've been going through uh, this beautiful uh, new translation of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and... Uh, The first thing I have to say is um, it's always nice, uh, I think, especially with works of philosophy, it's always nice to have a book that is beautiful and, you know, firm and solid and, you know, you like to hold it in your hand and you like to be around it. And that's definitely the impression I got with this book. It's beautiful. And what's inside, I, you know, I cannot recommend this version of the meditations more highly to anybody who listens to this podcast. And, um, I'm even going to, uh, you know, hopefully incorporate it into some of the stuff that I'm doing uh, here on the show as well. 
Um, wow, but uh, I, I really, um, I just think that the depth that you go to in terms of even explaining Stoicism in the introduction, explaining a, a brief history of Marcus Aurelius, the notations are amazing. And uh, what really got to me was uh, I've been diving deep lately into the kind of theology of Stoicism and uh, and kind of the metaphysics. And, and I have to say, like, it, it seems like you've got just such a strong grasp of exactly what Marcus Aurelius was getting at in a lot of these verses. So um, thank you for putting it together. I'm really excited to have this conversation and I'll open it up to you. Just tell me more about yourself, your background, and uh, and and then we'll dive in. Okay. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the show. Second, that was wow. I mean, that was such an introduction. Maybe we should just quit now. You know, quit while I'm <laughs> ahead before I say something that. No, nope, uh, I've got to get more out of you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm uh, I'm Robin Waterfield. I uh, live in southern Greece. You can tell by my accent that I'm actually English in origin, but I now, in fact, have dual citizenship. Uh, that was one of my responses to Brexit. Was to uh, yeah, apply for citizenship, which has now come through. I'm a, a full-time writer. That's the reason I moved to Greece in the first place. It's cheaper than uh, living in London. And um, I wanted to be able to dedicate myself just to my writing. So I moved here 15, 16 years ago. And since then, that's exactly what I've been doing. You know, I'm very, very fortunate, not just in where I am. I look up now and I see the tops of olive trees, which are some of which are mine, and then the sea in the distance. So it's, I'm very lucky in that I can live here and just do exactly what I want to do, which is translate and write books. I, tra I yeah. translate briefly, almost entirely ancient Greek prose writers, um, and I write books on mainly on history these days. Although in my, mm. in my time, I've written children's books, a biography, a book on hypnosis, all sorts. Wow. Yeah, Robin, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, the, the, just your wide experience and, and also your life experience. Uh, at, you know, we're, we're sitting here and I can hear the birds in the background of you. I just, I can't, I can't believe, um, you know, like I do my own coaching with people, but I feel like I'm going to have to eventually get you as a coach because if I could find my way into living on an olive farm in southern Greece <laughs> and writing all day, I think that that would be uh, heaven, you know. But um, but yeah, it's it's so wonderful to have you here, and I, I guess I want to start off by saying, um, okay, well, there's so many translations of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Obviously, um, what do you think that this one? brings to the table uh, what, what does it do do differently potentially okay well um look i've done over th i've got over 30 volumes of translations in in print at the moment and of those only one has was never not translated before all right so the first thing is i think every creative person's motivation is is you sit down and and you know you have to believe that you can do a better job than your predecessors Otherwise, what's the point? You're not motivated to do anything. So, um, so yeah, I translated Marcus Aurelius because I believed I could do a better job than, than other people. And obviously, in a certain sense, you you know, from time to time, you consult earlier translations, and so you're basically standing on their shoulders. And there are some very, very good ones out there. But you have to believe you can do a better job, and that's and that's what uh, attracted me to doing it. And also, it was this opportunity. I didn't approach the publisher, Basic Books. They approached me. Um, but and, and and they already had in mind this this specific sort of type of book they wanted, which is this 
you know, annotated version. Um, and they've designed the book, I think, very well so that it's all, the annotations are all footnotes, so you don't have to be moving to other parts of the book in order to read them. And, you know, and the translation is separated from the notes. So people who just want to read the translation can just read the translation. And people who want to add the layer of the notes, whatever they find in there that, that increases their enjoyment of the book can look at the notes as well. So um, it was the chance of, it was the challenge of translating Marcus. I always like a good challenge um, mm. and the chance to do so because obviously Marcus is somebody I've known about all my life, but I haven't, I haven't got into in that much depth before. So uh, yeah, it was the chance and the challenge, I think, as much as anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm intrigued by something that you say there because you mention any creative pursuit, you imagine that you can do a better job than somebody else did. Now, I, you know, I've, I guess I have always thought of translation. I, I never thought of it as a creative pursuit. And, and I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. Um, Cause I always thought of it as, okay, well, you're just trying to get the most accurate, you know, reading. Um, I guess one thing I could say is that there's, there's pretty much, there's as many notations as there are meditations from uh, Marcus Aurelius, which I love, you know, because each of his verses, I mean, I read Marcus Aurelius and I think, how do you get to the bottom of this one verse that he writes or this one little line that he writes? It could take you forever to really understand the depths of it, but you do a really good job of that in here. But talk to me about that balance of creativity and getting the translation correct. How do you see that? Yeah, well, Okay, there is there is one sense. I mean, as I said, I write you know other books as well, history books chiefly mm. nowadays, um, and there is there is one sense in which um, doing a translation is easier at any rate, but perhaps therefore less creative, which is that you're not having to worry about the architecture of what it is that you're writing because that's given to you. Yeah. But no, I mean a good translate. Okay, you know a good translator is aiming to not just be true to the original, but also to write good English, uh, English that's accessible to people nowadays, rather than the sort of stuffy translationese of, of, you know, at least certain translations in the past. And the other trouble with Marcus, I should say, by way of parenthesis, uh, one of the main troubles with Marcus translations that I found is that people are simply too creative. They, you quite often find translators putting in their own uh, spin, no, no, more than spin, put, even putting in some words and phrases um, or translating in a, such a loose way that it doesn't really reflect Marcus. Marcus obviously tempts translators to do that. I try to be absolutely true to the original, but absolutely uh, fluent in English as well. And that's yeah. where the creativity comes in because you weigh the effect of every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, you're holding all of that in your mind at the same time and trying to come up with something. And, and you, you, you ask yourself in effect, you know, you get very intimate with your author when you're a translator. It's, it is a very slow, very slow and thorough way of reading a book. You get very intimate and you end up effectively asking yourself, you know, have I done this entry of this notebook in a way that Marcus himself would approve? It's there that the creativity comes in. You're constantly drawing on uh, all your resources to uh, to do the best job you can. Yeah, yeah. I can certainly see how that would be the case. Um, and and you mentioned building that relationship almost with uh, with the person you're translating. 
is there anything that you discovered about Marcus Aurelius that surprised you once you had translated that you didn't really know before you had dived that deep into his works? Yeah, I would say the thing that that I wasn't expecting chiefly was how um, how good a writer he can be. You know, mm. I mean, yes, there are there are times when um, he's doing no more than jotting down thoughts, and that's a challenge to the translator because you know, some sometimes it's a bit ungrammatical, it's a bit elliptical. You have to almost guess what what he's trying to say because a translator has to understand. This is the scary thing about being a translator, Simon. You have to be as intelligent as the people you're translating and that's all not necessarily the case you know when I translate Plato or Marcus or somebody like that I have to try to understand what it is they're saying in order to get the translation right um I've lost the thread of what I was saying what were we talking about (laughs) well just 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 talking about building that relationship is there anything that you didn't know about them uh beforehand yeah, yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, no, it was what, how good a writer he can be, just how good a writer he can be. And um, some people try to use this as an argument for saying that he probably intended to publish the notebooks at some point, which I absolutely don't believe. They are they are a very private, very personal journal. He's saying things that he couldn't possibly let. You know, an emperor's position depends largely on, on the other people's perception of him, otherwise his throne is wobbly in danger. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's saying things that he couldn't let people possibly see. So I'm sure it wasn't for publication. But he was, you know, he was a highly educated and highly intelligent person. And everybody knows, everybody who's tried their hand at writing something knows that sometimes a sentence just comes out right the first time or or you polish it up for your own satisfaction. You know, you don't need to be thinking necessarily of any audience beyond yourself. You just, yeah. I'm sure. So, so that's what surprised me was just how good a writer he can be uh, sometimes and very much in control of his material. Um, you know, some of the sentences, this is much more possible in... Uh, ancient Greek than it is in English, but some of the sentences are very long and you need to have a good control over your material to write that kind of sentence and keep it coherent, not just vague and, you know, wishy-washy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, I couldn't agree more that he is such a beautiful writer. You know, I, I've been thinking about his stuff a lot lately. I'm actually doing a series where I'm going all the way through Seneca's writings and trying to stop wherever I find value and talk about it and and I know that I'm eventually going to use this book to go through Marcus Aurelius and do the same thing. Um, but uh, what I've found so beautiful about Marcus's writing is that there's a real um, poetic and almost mystical vein to it. Uh, you know, some things like there's one quote, for example, that I started thinking about and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was that one where he says, uh, the body is a river, the soul, a dream and mist. I know that in, in your version, you, you translate that to a, a, the soul, a dream and delusion, I believe. Um, and I actually used that as the start of a poem that I wrote that then trailed off into all kinds of thoughts about what it meant. But can you speak to that real mystical kind of poetic tone that he has a lot of the time and, and perhaps uh, what that says about uh, his style or his, his thought process about what it means to be a human, I guess? Well, I don't know what to say. Um, I mean, that could just be because it was a terrible he, formed question, by the way. But. Well, no, I don't. No, I don't think so. It's, it's just. It's just. I'm thinking that it is what it is. When you read one of those mm. entries, 
Um, but yeah, Marcus clearly, um, you know, the Stoic God is quite a difficult character in some ways. Mm. Um, he's 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 it is is this kind of impersonal reason which is steering and guiding uh, the whole universe. But Marcus um, personalizes it. He, God is clearly an entity with whom with which Marcus felt he could have a personal relationship. And he argues this at certain points. He talks about sort of different grades of atheism or beliefs in what gods can do. You either don't believe they exist altogether, there, is, there are no divine entities, or you believe they exist, but you know, simply started the world and then stood back and had nothing else to do with it. Or you believe that they can affect human life, but only at the most general level, not my life, but humanity or something. Or you believe that they can actually, that they actually oversee us as individuals and guide what we, what we do. And Marcus's basic premise is that God can only be good. This is mm. a benevolent entity who's steering the whole world for the better. Um, I mean, hence this very important aspect of Stoicism. Marcus is, stresses this quite a lot, that you should accept everything that happens to you. And I think some of the passages you're referring to as being particularly lyrical are exactly about that acceptance mm. so that he kind of submits to, to God's will, knowing that it's a, a benevolent will and that can only ever design what's best for you, for me, for him. And there's an important aspect of that, which I think people don't bring out enough. Um, if, you, if you were able to go through life believing that every event, everything that happened to you, my talking to you today, you're talking to me today, et cetera, et cetera, that has been designed for you personally by a benign deity then that immediately makes if you could really believe that and hold that in your brain in every event that's, that's happening then it would make every event it would make your whole life a series of very meaningful events mm. and so i think that's a that's a really good aspect of of uh, stoicism and marcus's stoicism in this is that it's it's a way to to make your life even moment by moment full of meaning and blessing yeah yeah. Do, have have you experienced that sort of experience uh, of deep meaning as you have dived deeper into these texts and stuck, tried to bring that over into your life, or have can you speak to you know your own experience with that sort of? Uh, I'm I'm not in any way a practicing Stoic. No, I'm coming <laughs> at this. I'm coming at this purely as a scholar and a translator yeah. from the outside. Uh, but uh, you know, I mean, in my in my past, I've explored all these areas, and so I find lots of resonance with what Marcus is saying. I was a meditation teacher for a long time. Uh, when I was a publisher, I was publishing a list called Arcana, which was you know everything like Buddhism and Vedantic philosophy and anything mm -hmm. that wasn't uh, wasn't mainstream in Britain at the time in the 1980s. I was publishing whether it was New Age stuff or traditional you know religious stuff from other cultures and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So I've long had an interest in that kind of area. Um, and so, as I say, Marcus, you know, strikes chords with me. But I came at him as a scholar, yeah, as a scholar, yeah. not as a practicing stoic. <laughs> well, uh, if I might jump in and, and get quite personal here, um, just because uh, I'm not the scholar and so I can say what I want. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, 
it's it's so funny you talk about um that kind of relationship that he had in terms of what would life look like if if you truly believed that whatever it is that we're all a part of here was good ultimately at the highest possible level and you would have these experiences of deep meaning uh, almost as if things are falling into place around you for your benefit if you would actually stop and look and see and it's funny, you know, I just have to say that you saying that you are describing the exact experience that I have had as I have deepened my understanding of the Stoic philosophy, even, you know, drawing inspiration from, say, Buddhism, Taoism, from Christianity, from all these places, but seeing the commonalities that exist throughout all of them that flow together. And I almost think that Stoicism offers a, an interesting key to understanding some of these ideas. Um, I guess an example that I could give you is that idea of Amor Fati, love your fate, this idea that, you know, fate is going to happen if you if you will just, if you'll get on board, get on that river and flow with it, things will be, turn out okay. That, that idea, it, it just struck me one day that it was almost no different to what they taught me in, 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 in church when I was younger, which was like, follow God's plan for you. Well, whatever happens, you might as well believe that it could be good for you. And if you do that, then you'll see more. And I wonder if we could dive deeper into the, the theology of Stoicism, because my experience has certainly been that it is not talked about often enough in, in modern circles, almost because I guess it's, it, it I, I don't know why, but um, but I'd love to go deeper into that. So maybe we'll start. Could you talk to me about the influence of Heraclitus on the Stoics? Um, <laughs> I, I may be throwing you under the bus here because I don't know how much no, time you spent with this, Heraclitus. No, this is a topic which, uh, you know, academics like to write about, so... Uh, I'm trying to think what to say in a way that isn't too scholarly or, you know, obtuse. Um, he was a huge influence. Um, and uh, they looked back to him for a number of their most important, particularly physical theories. Um, uh, for instance, that there's a universal conflagration every infinite number of years, and then the, the cycle repeats exactly mm. You know, um, in the new cycle in a billion years hence. You know, Simon Drew and Robin Waterfield will be talking all over again, exactly the same, complete, complete identity. They got that from Heraclitus. They got the idea of uh, fire being one of the more important elements for the Stoics. Uh, air and fire were active elements and were the constituents of soul. And I think we should talk about soul at some point. Um They got, above all, Heraclitus is most famous for being the philosopher of flux, but everything is always changing. His famous saying, you can't step into the same river twice mm. um, because it's, it's everything's, you know, every experience you have, everything is always moving on. Um, and that was one of the main things, certainly that Marcus got from him, the ephemeral um, and therefore triviality of quite a lot of the, of our existence in the material world was an important, uh, you know, the Stoics always wanted to be able to rise above that and, and deal with it in a rational and sensible way. Um, those are the main things they got from Heraclitus. But of course, Heraclitus wasn't the only influence on, on Stoicism or on Marcus in particular. He, Socrates was the main man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, 
Legitimately so. Socrates taught one of one of his students, his most famous students, of course, were Plato and Xenophon, but one of the lesser known ones was a man called Antisthenes, was a very central and important Socratic. Unfortunately, his written work is almost entirely lost. He taught Diogenes of Sinope, the first cynic, you know, the famous guy who lived in a quotes barrel. It wasn't a barrel, but, you know, and Diogenes taught Crates. Um, who was a cynic in Athens, and Crates taught Zeno of Citium, who founded Stoicism. So there was there was a direct lineage. I mean, it's it's correct. And the Stoics took a lot of their central ideas from Socrates that virtue is knowledge, um, that no one does wrong willingly. This is a very important thread in in the Meditations that no one deliberately sets out to do wrong. Everybody thinks that what they're doing is what's best for them to be doing. Uh, that is that is your primary motivation in everything you do but it's just that sometimes you can be wrong so this is why marcus says you know if you see somebody doing wrong don't chastise him educate him talk to him explain show him where his mistake is because for the stoics every every action you do is actually motivated by a proposition a thought you know uh which ends up as this is the best thing for me to do and you go ahead and do it um mm. So Socrates is, is I would say, you know, the, the main the main influence. But in Marcus, he's kind of not very well characterized Socrates. He's more of just an ideal figure that who's brought in once in a while as if to say, how would Socrates react to this situation? What would Socrates say in this situation? Something like that. And then in Marcus, you've got the influence of his teachers. That's what the whole first book is about. Um, and these were very important influences on him. Above all, his adopted father, the previous emperor Antoninus Pius, who uh, Marcus looked to as, I think, really the ideal Roman emperor. So he was a huge influence on him. And then lastly, and not at all leastly, Epictetus, who was this, uh, as everybody knows, a former slave in roughly the previous generation from Marcus, who became the most uh, important and influential Stoic teacher of that generation. And uh, Marcus tells us, that it was one of his teachers, Rusticus, who introduced him, gave him a copy of um, Epictetus's discourses. Mm. And so, so much of the Stoic stuff that Marcus says in Meditations is lifted more or less directly. It, sometimes it's a direct quotation, but sometimes it's just the phraseology or the way he's looking at things is just Epictetus. I mean, Marcus must have had access to the work of all those early Stoics, you know, like Zeno himself and Chrysippus, the most important theoretician of uh, Stoic philosophy in the third century BC. He must have had access to this, but I'm not entirely sure how deeply steeped he was in them, because pretty much, you know, when I read the Stoicism of Marcus, I'm reading Epictetus, Epictetus yeah. directly or, or obliquely. So I think Epictetus was the main, and, and Epictetus was doing the same sort of thing as Marcus, you see. I mean, except Marcus is chastising himself and trying to get himself, you know, the you in the meditations is always him, himself, mm. whereas the you in Epictetus is one of his students or a visitor to the school or or a fictional character that he's made up uh, you know, in order to make a point. So there's this difference. But but nevertheless, the, the colloquial and um, and personal style uh, of Marcus's meditations is something I think he got from Epictetus above above all. That was the chief influence, I'm sure.
And it's a yeah. great book, of course, as I'm sure your your uh, listeners know. It's a brilliant book. Yeah. I've translated that as well. Yeah, oh, you have? Well. Okay, well, maybe we're going to have to yeah. have another conversation down the line about Epictetus, right? Because, a, year or two, um, a year or two down the line. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, Epictetus is, I, I guess, he's the one who I've spent less time with. Uh, I'm, I'm mostly interested at the moment in, in uh, Seneca, but then I'll, I've obviously been into uh, meditations at, at time to time. But the reason, the, the only reason I brought up Heraclitus was just because I felt that that of, of, of all the Stoic philosophers that I've read, it seems like uh, Marcus's style is more similar to Heraclitus's style of writing the wisdom poetry than it is to other types. And even thinking about something that uh, Heraclitus said, I've, I've read recently, it just it, some of his things that he says, you can never get to the bottom of them fully, but he says, the oneness of all wisdom can be uh, can be seen under the name of God, right? And that really got me thinking about, um, uh, you know, med- in meditations, in Seneca's letters, I believe in Epictetus as well, they all use these phrases, God, capital G, they use Zeus, capital Z, um, they use uh, gods, uh, they, they use multiple different names. And I'm wondering... Could you talk to me about the kind of uh, uh, understanding that the Stoics had of kind of the hierarchy of the universe, the lower things, uh, you know, helping the higher things? Um, and can you talk to me about the why they used all these different mul- you know, multiple terms for God or the gods or Zeus? What, how did they all relate to each other, do, do you believe? Okay, well, I mean, okay, to, to do the second question first, um, they're all synonyms to say to say God, and even to say the plural, the gods, I'll come back to that, mm. uh, is sometimes just a way of saying the divine, and to say Zeus, and to say reason, and to say providence, and to say benign reason, you know, uh, th- those are all, for Marcus and for the Stoics, um, just synonyms. Uh, because as as we said before, the universe is is uh, <clears throat> guided by this benevolent reason. Then uh, call it God. Now I, I said I come back to the plural gods because I think Marcus is reaching for a conception uh, somewhat similar, if I understand things correctly, to how Christians think of angels. If Christian mm. thinks, if Christians think of angels as the agents of of God's benevolence. They are the ones who carry out his design and his plans. And I think Marcus thinks of the plural gods as the agents of Zeus's benevolence, carrying out his plans. He doesn't go into detail. He doesn't talk about Athena does this or Apollo does that, or he doesn't, you know, sort of name the traditional gods in that way. But I think that's I think that's how he was uh, he was thinking of it. Mm. And. Heraclitus. No, you made a really good point there, which actually hadn't occurred to me, that the style of of meditations, this slightly gnomological style, as you say, based on wisdom literature rather than discursive writing, it hadn't occurred to me. That is, but you're right. As far as we can tell, Heraclitus didn't write a kind of a discursive book. He just, uh, again, jotted down ideas. I mean, they cohere into into a you know a composite picture which uh, uh, makes philosophical or mystical sense, but um, yeah, but he was just jotting down ideas. That's a really good insight. I've 
turned aside to note that and I must make sure. a note for myself. <laughs> hey, I'm honoured. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I've certainly found with Heraclitus's writings that, and I think similar to, to meditations, that, like you say, that they seem separate because they're these little poetic uh, uh, lines. But, but I don't know, something, something about Heraclitus lately has just been really drawing me into his writings, I guess because I'm a creative and I'm more drawn towards that kind of poetic way of, of doing things. And, and uh, you know, you're right that once you really see the patterns that flow throughout everything that he's saying, it's, it's like the text comes alive. And I feel like it's almost the same thing with Marcus Aurelius is that it might not all relate, but but then when you start to really step back and see the big picture, he's he's really trying to figure something out. And I think the closest way I could come to describing my experience with, well, it's kind of my experience because I've been doing a lot of writing lately, but then I relate that to, to what Marcus Aurelius might've been doing with his. It's, you know, it's almost as if he's trying to figure out what his consciousness is doing. You know, he's just, he's stepping back and saying, uh, okay, so I'm here. I see all of this stuff. I can kind of go within as well and see what's in there. There's a whole bunch yeah. of people asking me to do things. There's a whole bunch of events happening. What does this mean about, what does it mean that I'm seeing all of this? And, and, and so that's why, to me, that's why it seems that he, he kind of goes in that more mystical direction because sometimes the experience that we have, you might agree, can only be described in kind of mystical terms because it's just so uh, strange, <laughs> I guess. I, I don't know. W would you yeah. agree? Yeah. Well, yes, I, I'm, I'm going to agree, but I'm also going to qualify it. I'm going mm. to agree going back actually to something you were saying about five or six minutes ago um, that, you know, whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Stoic or whatever you are, the experience the numinous experience is the same. It's only when you come to talk about it afterwards that you clothe it in different terms, Stoic terms, Christian terms, Buddhist terms, whatever kind of terms. So it's only at the level of, as it were, conversation that uh, misunderstanding can come in. But at the level of experience, there's, there's, there's no difference whatsoever. Mm. But what I'm gonna, the reason I'm gonna qualify it, and I think this is important, um, um, is that the Stoics weren't, you know, when we talk about, when we, when we use the word mysticism today, we're generally talking about transcending the human mind. Mm. I mean, in, in, in meditation practice, you're taught to, you know, overcome the mind, not to follow your thoughts, you know, just to lay them aside, et cetera, et cetera. And you're trying to transcend the mind and get back to the source of something inside you. But the Stoics were... And this goes for ancient philosophy in general. Uh, the, the, the history of ancient philosophy, is, as far as I'm concerned, is the history of people discovering more and more uses for the human mind based on the premise that the world is actually a comprehensible place. It's not the playground of fickle gods, which, you know, the divine perspective, the ancient Greek divine perspective had it to be. Um, mm. And Marcus is, Marcus is along with that. I mean, God is reason. And the essence, the most important part of our soul, 
because uh, you know there's there's the soul that we share with animals the soul that enables us to move and and get hungry and so on and so forth but the only part of us which is essentially human not animal is our rational mind and that's the bit we share with the gods that's the bit we share with with zeus and providence and so on and so forth is our rationality he's not and the stoics as a whole aren't and greek philosophers as a whole aren't until you get to the Neoplatonists or somebody like that. But as a whole, they're not trying to transcend mind. They're trying to hone your mind. They're trying to make your mind um, a proper tool for perfecting yourself and for understanding the world. So in that respect, I think it's important to qualify the use of the term mysticism. Mm. Yeah. Is it almost as if, uh, let me see if I understand what you're saying here. It's, it's almost as if uh, that enlightenment point is not somewhere that you right, arrive of outside of yourself, but it is within yourself because it is that spark of divinity that connects you to the whole. And so it, it's almost a matter of definitions, right? Yeah. Yeah. To be, to be enlightened in Stoic terms wouldn't be to, you know, be living in Nirvana or something like that. It would be to be in complete control of your life to uh, so that you you were never uh, misdirected by feeling you know negative emotions um, uh, you were you were understanding god's will and completely in in harmony with it in your own mind and your own soul uh, you know all of that would be would be the what the stokes would call enlightenment if they used the term um, but it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be any kind of I don't know, anything I was going to say was going to sound silly, like, you know, golden haze or something like that. It would be mm. it would be a sharp use of the mind and a good use of the mind, never succumbing to, you know, your baser instincts and desires and things like that, helping people in a rational and sensible way in the world around you. That's a very important part of being a virtuous person because they spoke about an enlightened person as a fully virtuous person. Uh, mm. You know, the Stoic sage was somebody who could never not do wrong um this is why <laughs> they also said that the stoic sage was as rare as the phoenix <laughs> because uh, but, and going back to an earlier stage of our conversation they th that's the pedestal they were putting socrates in particular on socrates in particular was to them the ideal stoic sage who could do no wrong and heraclitus to a certain extent but socrates was the main one the one they looked back yeah. to yeah yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm definitely interested in that idea of the sage because on, on one hand you say, okay, well, I get it. You know, there's going to be these people who come along, but then there's that idea that it comes along about every one hundred, every 500 years, I think I've read. Um, and, and I wonder to what extent did they truly believe uh, that a, a person like this would come along every so often like that? And, and also to, to what extent did they, uh, I don't want to say deify, but that's the direction I'm going. You know, the sage was was not. It, it was like a step above humanity, wasn't it? Like it was. It was almost like the perfect human, but it's just unattainable. Is that right? Well, I think no. I think I think they would absolutely agree with you that uh, I think they were deliberately holding this out as an unattainable ideal, but it still mm -hmm. has to be an ideal, and perhaps that's the same in in other religions as well. I mean, you know, we're, we're encouraged to be Christ-like in Christianity, but I mean, 
who can do that? Mm. We're encouraged to, you know, become bodhisattvas or, or, or Buddhas in Buddhism, but who can do that? So mm. I think I think that was precisely what the ideal of the sage was, something to strive for, even, you know, to encourage you to keep trying, keep trying, even though you know you're probably not, not going to make it. Um, mm. There's a lovely bit... Um, you know, Leo Tolstoy wrote at the end of the uh, Kreutzer Sonata, he described ideals as a light um, in a lantern that's on a pole that you yourself are holding out of you. It's never any closer. It's always drawing you on. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's an image that, uh, that the Stoics would have related to as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, an ideal. Well, I might, if, if I might, uh, I don't know how much time you've spent with Orthodox Christianity. I've spent no time, uh, although I was raised as, um, as, as a Mormon. And so I have that kind of background of, um, of, of the doctrine of Christianity. But one thing I've been thinking about lately is in Orthodox Christianity, there's this idea of theosis, which is obviously there's like a pathway to becoming a saint and a saint is almost, the, it's like the ideal human being, right? And and, and so I, I see so many similarities between the theology of Stoicism and, and say this idea, because in Orthodox Christianity, you might say, okay, well, there's this theosis path where if you do these certain things and if you follow this certain path, you'll ar arrive at this point where you have that, that deep connection with God, which is the oneness of all wisdom and the planning yeah. element of, of the universe. But then you think, okay, well, this, the Stoics almost had the exact same thing. Just replace saint with sage, you know, replace uh, God with Zeus or the gods or God or the oneness of all wisdom. Yeah. And um, did they, do, do you feel that they, do you feel that they had some sort of path almost to, I, I like I've heard patheosis before. I'm not sure if that's actually a term, um, but was there almost a path for the Stoics to follow in this kind of uh theology of the philosophy that would lead to to sagehood or was it only unattainable do you mean like was there a system were there were there sort of systematic well, stages along the way or yeah i guess just if we could dive into the to uh a little bit more of the theology and that system that they had of the the you know the levels of 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 rising up the chain of stoicism you might say um and I might have nothing here. There might be absolutely. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that the. I'm not sure there were stages spelled out like that. You just mm. kept hammering away at the same stuff, and I think that's that's true to our experience, isn't it? That you know, however, however long you've been meditating or whatever it is uh, you've been doing, uh, you still, in the end, moment by moment, have to deal with. You know, am I going to do this or am I going to do that? How am I going to behave? Am I going to behave as a good person? Actually, you still have to deal with the nitty gritty all the time. And yeah. I think so. I don't think there were sort of stages like that. It's just the constant hammering away and hopefully getting better at deploying your attention, better at, you know, um, controlling your emotions and all those sorts of things, rather than, rather than it being a sort of a, uh, a stage i mean we spoke earlier about what the medieval what in medieval times was called the great chain of being the scala naturae in latin where from you know inanimate things like rocks 
to lower forms of animals, to animals, to human beings, to gods. Um, uh, but I don't think, you know, that wasn't a scale in the sense of a ladder that you had to climb in any sense, because we already have, we already share what we share with stones and animals. And as we say before, with the, with our rational soul being God, we, we already have all we need to make that final leap into you know enlightenment or it's just that we have to keep trying and trying and trying and trying and this and this mm. is what meditation is all about this is this is this is the explains the form of the book since it was the stoic practice constantly every moment to try to improve yourself and marcus is writing things down you know the book is slightly repetitious because he writes things down as they occur to him and sometimes the same things occur to him years apart um so he writes things down again and again and again to keep hammering away, to keep trying to improve himself every moment of the day, everything he's doing. Um, yeah. That's that's exactly what yeah. Meditations is. That's what it's for. Yeah, yeah. And and you definitely get that from the reading. And I, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's not necessarily like, Okay, I'm seeing it's not it's not like a, a ladder, it's a constant process that you're involved in in your life. Yeah. Um now you mentioned earlier on that we should jump into the soul. Uh, and I would absolutely love to do that uh, if we have time. I think we have a little bit of time. So, yeah, um, there, there was one word that you mentioned in the notes that you had uh, uh, some trouble translating. I believe it was psyche, some, something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. And maybe you could touch on that. But also, yeah, talk to me about the soul and what Marcus Aurelius meant by that and, and, and the, I guess, the, the Stoic view. Yeah, well, psyche is um, yeah the Greek word that that we translate soul, but we also translate it mind, and we also mm -hmm. translate it in a number of other ways. Now, I almost entirely in meditations went for soul as the translation because psyche for Marcus is a very capacious concept, and so I needed a similarly capacious idea in in uh, in English, and I think soul does that better than mind mind sort of starts to sound too intellectual whereas as i say soul does a lot more i mean the most important part of the soul is for marcus is the rational soul but it also does a lot more besides it it senses you know receives sense perceptions it dreams it fancies it plans it remembers you know all of these all of these are part of uh, what the soul does and he i mean he thought of soul in uh from a number of uh, different ways um and uh, some of them slightly obscure and this is one of the reasons i wrote the notes is to bring out uh you know in many ways the notes are to bring out just how much of a stoic he was how much stoic thought infuses the meditations so for instance at a physical level he thinks of the soul as made up of uh, air and fire he says mm -hmm. the soul is air and fire mm -hmm. the body is earth and water so he's got this slightly platonic dualism and therefore soul is that which separates from the body at death and uh you know so soul at, and one it's very interesting one of the reasons the stoics did think of the soul as material as made up of these two elements two of the four elements albeit the two most refined elements but the way they reasoned you see was they said things like um well we are moved to act by let's say an emotion we're frightened of something and we act by running away so they said but but if the soul is totally immaterial as for instance the platonists say how can it affect something material like the body 
So the reason they mm. the reason they thought of the soul as material <laughs> was so that it could have an effect on the material body and explain our actions, explain how it generate how something that's happening in the soul could generate action in the body. And then they thought of soul, as we've been saying, I don't need to go into this anymore, as, as essentially reason. This is the part of soul that we don't share with animals, that we share with the gods. And so it's the most important part of soul and could, should be our guiding uh, influence. He calls it um, sometimes the guardian spirit within and sometimes quite often the command center, a term that wasn't original to Marcus, but was a stoic term for, you know, the rational mind. The, the soul understood as that which receives impressions and generates action, the command center, the guiding uh, element in your life, or what should be the guiding element. Well, no, 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 that was, I, I said that wrong. It always is the guiding element in your life because soul isn't always necessarily a good thing. It can be corrupted. So even bad people are operating from their command center. It's just that they're going about it, you know, what they do, they're going about it in the wrong way. Hmm. He talks about hmm. the soul for Marcus is also clearly his true self or everybody's true self uh, when he's trying to uh, talk himself into uh, being more tolerant of other people. <laughs> One way he puts this quite often is, uh, you know, look into their souls. In other words, you know, understand them as they really are, who they who they really are. So he thinks of the soul and he says it about himself as well. So he thinks of the soul as his true self. Um so it's the sight of everything that's that's good and bad in a person. Mm. Uh, it depends entirely what thoughts you have and how you go about your your life. As to, but it's still the same soul that is that is doing this all the time. He yeah. thinks of soul, the life force, as I said, is that which uh, separates um, at death and and. You know, that is to him a sufficient explanation of death. He explained one of the ways he explains death is simply the separation of the soul from the body. So it's the, the soul is the life force It's what animates you um, and what departs at your uh, at your death. And finally, I would say he thinks of soul as a place of retreat. Do you remember four three? It's a lovely notebook four where he starts, people try to find retreats for themselves in the countryside, by the sea, in the mountains. And then a bit later, but there's no retreat more peaceful and untroubled than a man's own mind. So that would probably, I can't remember if that was the Greek word psyche, but it almost certainly was. It might have been diamoia. And this is especially true of a man who has inner resources, which are such that he has only to dip into them to be entirely untroubled. So he goes on, so he sort of says... Um, at the end, so then, remember that you already have a little estate into which you can retreat and make it your priority not to get agitated, uh, make it your priority not to get agitated or tense, better to be your own master. So it was a way of, it was somewhere where he could retreat to, withdraw from the world in, in order to, again, not in a mystical way, he's not withdrawing from the world, he's withdrawing from the world temporarily as a way of coming back to it refreshed and being, you know, capable of uh, coping with. This is a strain in the meditations. Marcus clearly had a short temper. He clearly was irritated by a lot of the jobs that he had to do and by a lot of the people around him. So he's constantly, uh, you know, telling himself to, to control his temper and uh, look out for other people and think more kindly about other people and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. retreat. Yeah. 
get calm, come back, but come back and deal with the world. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're, you're reminding me, this is, this is such great stuff because this is, I, I think, some of the most important aspects of, of Stoicism that if you get it right, it can really help you to think about, again, your consciousness and what it means that you see and perceive and all this sort of stuff. And I think... I have to tell you this, uh, you, you might know Sharon LaBelle. Um, I've had her on the show multiple no, times. Uh, she she translated some of Epictetus's writings into a beautiful book called The Art of Living a while ago, which kind of uh, hit it big time. But um, she, one of the things that she told me, she she was talking to her mother when she was younger and her mother was this, this wonderful artist and, but she didn't really like to travel. And she asked her mom, you know, mom, why, why don't you like to travel around and see the world? And her, her mom looked at her and said, gardens of the mind, Sharon, gardens of the mind. Right. And that's, that's exactly what Marcus Aurelius is saying at gardens of the mind, you know, at the estate in your mind yeah. where you go to, you plant those seeds, they flourish into something beautiful. And there's, yeah, since, there's something since, since truly only- beautiful about that. Right it's only we marcus repeatedly said it's only we who make the world a good or a bad place it's only our minds and how we how we think about things that make the world a good or a bad you know he almost quotes hamlet nothing is good or bad but thinking makes it so i mean that's a very marcus and stoic thing to say yeah yeah um, so, there was something else i was going to say to what you said but i can't remember now what it is <laughs> our conversation's moving so fast i keep grasping for <laughs> i always find that if you just forget about it it'll come back up later and you can <laughs> insert it then yeah maybe so I, I wanted to touch on uh, one thing that you said as well because it, it was kind of a um it was a uh, it was a really important moment for me seeing you talk about uh in the book and also just now uh, talk about this idea of uh, the higher and the lower, you've got the soul, which is higher, which is the, the air and, and fire, and then earth and, and water below is the body. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us a, a, a bit more about how important that is to the philosophy, because I know, I know I've been reading Seneca lately, and one of the things that I got straight away from some of his earlier letters um, was that he talks about the supremacy of the soul. It's like the number one thing. That's the most important thing. But then he often talks about this kind of despise the body. It's almost like that. I know I've read that in the Bible as well, despise the flesh, right? Uh, can you talk to me about that That kind of, um, yeah, that, that dual nature just a little bit more and, 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 and what it means that they're saying, you know, like the soul is supreme, the body is the lower, um, it, does that have to do with that kind of hierarchical nature of the universe that they talk about? Yes, it does. Um, because, um, well, when you brought it up earlier, 15, 20 minutes ago, you said uh, the lower helps the higher at each stage. That's not quite right. Uh, mm. The way Marcus puts it is the lower serves the higher. Mm. Um, and even to the extent, as it were, of being food for the higher, you know, Actually, funny enough, I must tell you an experience I had years and years ago when I was a student still. And we were driving along in a car on a uh, dark night. We were talking about just this concept about how um, uh, Gurdjieff calls it eat and be eaten, that the lower is food for the higher and so on and so forth. And just as we were talking about this, this concept, an owl swooped down onto the road in front of our headlights and grabbed a mouse. So it was kind of <laughs> it was kind of like a, a perfect metaphor for what we were talking about. So it's That's good. beautiful. So, yeah. 
So, so yeah, the lower serves the higher. So from that perspective, the body should serve the mind or the body should serve the soul. Um, the body in itself, Marcus repeatedly says, is simply an inert, you know, lump of matter. Every, all its motivation, all its animation, everything it actually is made to do comes, comes from the soul. It itself is, 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 is nothing. So, um, but it has certain needs. It has, uh, you know, aches and pains. It feels pleasure. All of these things are temptations, Marcus felt, that need to be, uh, need to be dealt with so that you, as it were, rise above the fleshly, body and uh, focus your attention entirely on what your mind is doing and how that is helping you to cope with the world and be good to other people and so on and so forth rather than being torn away from these things by uh so so there's this there's this ascetic strand um strand to to marcus's thought and he admits that right at the beginning of book one if you remember where he's thanking his teachers and uh um i think one of them is at diagnetus he he ends the the little paragraph of thanks by saying that he found you know was attracted to he calls it the greek education or the greek way of life um and sleeping on you know thin mattresses and a certain kind of so he there was this there was this ascetic trend but i don't think taken to an extreme of you know flagellation of the flesh or something but just you know not overeating not over indulging in anything Marcus tells him off quite sweetly, tells himself off quite sweetly a couple of times for oversleeping. He clearly didn't like to get up in the mornings and he says, come on, you've got important stuff to do. You've got, you know, sleeping is what you share with the animals, but you've got some human stuff to do. So get on with it. Yeah. Um, like so, uh, so, the, so the body in that sense is something that you rise above. But I think, as I say, not extreme asceticism, because extreme asceticism, in a sense, brings the body more to your attention you're spending you're devoting you know if it's if it's suffering then it's more likely to impede you know your your path towards virtue and your progress as a rational being so moderate frugality marcus praises frugality at a couple of points rather than you know extremity of either kind yeah but it certainly th- seems like that's a, a theme that runs through all the stocks i mean seneca certainly had uh, I particularly like Seneca's kind of middle way approach in everything that he does, you know, give it what it needs, but, you know, but also don't, don't go too far and uh, everything in moderation. And uh, that actually leads me to, I guess I've got two more questions for you. Uh, Do you have, do you have time? Sure. Wonderful. Uh, So Marcus Aurelius takes kind of an extreme approach, which I have been really trying to understand uh, where he says, throw away your books. You know, and there's almost a, a kind of attitude that he has in some moments where you think, okay, he's got hold of a type of wisdom that is so good that he's saying nothing could compare to this almost. <laughs> and and I've been really thinking about that. Uh, and and ha- I don't know, have you thought about that idea that he gives off often with throw away your yeah. books and what that means? No, I've thought about it a lot. Uh, recently, because as I said, I was translating Epictetus, and this is a very, very strong uh, thread in Epictetus's thought. Mm. And I think actually we won't understand what Marcus is saying about it, and uh, without reading, without without reading Epictetus and getting his uh, take on it. Now, yeah. Um, so let's start with Epictetus. He he had a school, and in the mornings he was teaching theory. 
he was teaching the three branches of uh, of philosophy as the Stoics saw it, you know, that is uh, logic, physics and ethics. And the logic was tough theoretical logic, the physics was tough theoretical physics, and the ethics was all the ethical theories and principles of Stoicism. But then in the afternoons, we don't have any of Epictetus's teachings in that respect. What we have here is discourses. So in the afternoons, he would stroll around with his uh, pupils and he'd say, book learnings are completely useless unless you put it into practice. There's no point in reading books unless you put it into practice. And time and time again, he's hammering, and Epictetus, as you know, really does hammer his uh, students. He can be really, he calls them, in my translation, you sorry excuse for a man and things like that. And, you know, <laughs> stupid and things like that. Uh, he, he beats them up um yeah but but so theory is useful theory gives one a structure you know if you have an experience the experience itself is formless so you need structure you need an architecture you need a you need somewhere to place it to understand it so, um, and particularly um, the Stoics, you know, understanding the nature of the world, physics, understanding the nature of right and wrong thought processes, logic, uh, understanding what it's good and bad to do, ethics. These all, these all provide the foundation for you to actually go out and be a better person. So ultimately, ethics is the nub of it, of the three branches, logic, physics, ethics. Ethics is the practical branch or the branch that you particularly can turn to put into practice. But the other two give you your framework, so they cannot be discarded. And I think that's I think that's where Marcus is coming from as well. So yes, ultimately, throw away your books. But no, I, here's a good analogy from, from years and years and years. By the ago, way, I feel terrible that we're talking about this when we're actually also advertising your book. So <laughs> get this book and no. then throw away the rest, okay? But, <laughs> <laughs> but go on. No, I've just thought of an analogy. That's a nice, uh, a nice image that somebody told me years and years and years ago, which is um, he said, look, when you do this kind of work, you there's a new countryside for you to explore. So you study the map, you learn the map, all right? So that you know what, what the countryside is like, where the roads are, where the hills are, where the rivers are. But then when you're actually in the countryside, you don't need the map, you throw away the map because you already know you can find your way around. That, that I think is something, is, is what Marcus and Epictetus and so on are getting at, um, you know, when they say ultimately throw away your books, it's only ultimately mm. throw away your books. Books are important. Yeah. So don't worry, you're not dissing my book. Books are still <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that analogy that you give, I think that that is really, uh, really useful because the sense that I have got is that, you know, if it would be possible for you to truly connect with your soul and understand what that means and, and who you are in terms of your place within the hierarchy of the universe, and if you truly could gain wisdom to, uh, you know, from that kind of oneness of wisdom that Heraclitus would talk about, for example. And, yeah. and if, if you truly understood this kind of stoic roadmap, I do get the sense that you might come to a place where you think, okay, well, wisdom is the most important thing. Now that I seem to have a grasp of it, it's all practice, you know, and, and Seneca would often say, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Seneca, which really, really inspired me to, actually put down the books for a while and start writing. He said, uh, you know, you, you talk about, well, Zeno said this and he said that, and but what do you say, you know? And 
and exactly and, so. and so it is a theme that runs through where they're trying to say get off the teat <laughs> you know you 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 know you've suckled enough right go and actually try these principles right yeah no definitely um and, and again that that yeah as i said that's a very strong thread in epictetus more implicit mm. in marcus but definitely informing informing what he says but you know you may have to go back to your books i don't think i don't think it's like a one stage thing like you know jettison jettisoning that stage of the rocket you know yeah. and then the, the next bit takes off i think you're yeah. constantly because you're constantly having to deal with the world and with reality so i think you need to you know refresh yourself in that way as well by coming back to the text i'm sure a stoic would, would say that yeah perhaps yeah. in a way that perhaps in the way that you know i mean epicurus one of the core uh, ways that epicureanism was perpetuated was simply you know learning the master's words of wisdom uh, just so you were coming back and back and back to the text and then you know going out and hopefully putting them into practice and i, th- and I think i'm sure something similar would have gone on in stoicism as well yeah. um well certainly but, seneca used that similar approach i mean he he believed that the the right way to study was to first decide okay who is the person that i'm going to be learning from they clearly have a great soul they clearly have a great mind i want to learn from them and then he said it's the sign of a fussy stomach to just be going from here to there go to that one teacher who you really admire and learn everything that you can about the way that they think and then you'll actually have some you know solid foundation beneath you as opposed to just a little bit from here and there and yeah, I, I no, kind I of, be- yeah. I, yeah, I absolutely believe that um, you can't ride two horses at once. If you if you're going to commit to something, you need to commit wholeheartedly. Otherwise, I don't think there's any point in doing it. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's that's literally the reason behind me diving into Seneca and doing a whole series on his works, just because I thought, well, if I could, you know, it, it's going to be about 500 episodes, I swear. And it's probably going to take yeah, me about it's, it's, uh, five it's years. a lot of, lot of material. Um, <laughs> and then I started reading his natural questions and I thought, oh, there's even more good stuff in here, you know, so I'm going to have to go through it all. But, uh, but the reason I want to do that is because I believe that Seneca's, I believe that you could... I know that Marcus and Seneca and Epictetus, they all have their, their, their strains of Stoicism, but I also believe that you can almost step back and say, okay, well, what is Seneca's philosophy? Because he has a different approach in some areas. And then what is Marcus's philosophy? And I think you can look at them uniquely as well. I'm certainly learning that with Seneca. But um, I guess, look, Robin, this has been so much fun. I have one more question for you, and then uh, and then I'll, I'll let you get back Sorry, to can your, I just your... ask you? Can I just ask you, ask yes. you a quick question? Uh, the, the Seneca, um, I assume you're reading in translation. Are you using the Chicago translations, the relatively new University of Chicago Press no, translations? No, I'm not, actually. Oh, well, they are really, really, I, th- I think they're the best. Anyway, I just, okay. just ask Chica- you. Okay, that's those new ones that I see with the different colored uh, Exactly, uh, yeah, orange yeah. and blue and green and paperbacks and things yeah. like that. Well, Perfect I'll have to get page. them. I'm just going off, I believe it's Richard Mont- Montgomery. Um, the, the I don't know, I don't know. I just know yeah. that the, the, the Chicago ones are very good. Anyway, sorry, do ask yeah. your final no, question. No, no, that's yeah. fine. Well, I'll have to <laughs> grab those. But um, I, I guess for anybody who's going to dive in, and I really do hope that they do grab this book and dive deep into uh, the meditations, uh, are there any tips that you would give them uh, that uh, will help them to get the most out of this book? Is there a different approach that you would take with reading something like uh, the meditations or, or do you think that it's just all there, just go straight in? I think it's all there, just go straight in. And I think it's the sort of book, you know, as, as in a sense, all great books are that, 
anybody can get something out of it. So some people, I think a lot of people will read it as it were as a sort of um, a bedside book. You know, they might dip into it and read two or three entries before going to sleep or at some point during the day, or but just dip into it and they might not start at book one and go all the way up to the end. You know, they might, I, I actually recommend people to start with book five because I think in book five, he's far less technical there's far less uh, stoicism going on he's just talking sort of plain common sense really so some people you know read book five and maybe that encourages them and other people will hopefully read my introduction which um people say i did a good job you know um in introducing stoicism and marcus and and that's also what the notes are for as well to to deepen people's understanding of the text a lot of the notes um I suppose there are sort of three categories of notes. There's my own sort of general ideas being thrown out. But a lot of them are also, I'm just trying to point out, because it's not necessarily on the surface, how much of a stoic Marcus is, and I'm explaining his stoic technical terms and things like that, so the notes are held in that way. But also quite a lot of them are cross-references, uh, so that people can deepen their understanding of the text by seeing what else Marcus has to say about the possibility of reincarnation, say, or, you know, survival after death or universal conflagration or, or something like that. So I'm just trying to steer people through. And some people hopefully will, yeah, enjoy the notes as well and, and uh, perhaps steer through the book in that way, following the cross references and things like that. But I think it's, I think, as I say, I think one of the reasons it's a great book is that anybody can get, you know, somebody like Chris Gill, who's who's the world's leading academic stoic or one of them, approaches him in a very different way from the way that that I or a practicing stoic would or somebody like that. Everybody from from you know hardcore academics to the most uneducated reader can get something out of Marcus. That's why he's great. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, yeah. especially with the notes that you use uh, in in this book, I just recommend to everybody go to the notes because that it it just opens up the text for you. And so, um, yeah, again, Robin, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I've really enjoyed no, it, and you. I have to get you back eventually in the future. Yeah, yeah. When when Epictetus comes out, we'll talk again. Yes, and good luck with the show. And thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. That was that was uh, really good fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. Remember that you can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. There you'll gain access to many exclusive episodes that haven't been released yet, as well as over 200 episodes recorded before 2020. If you'd like to work one-on-one with me as you move towards your ideal, then you can go to simonjedrew.com forward slash coaching. But for now, I'll talk to you next time.